Good morning, I'm Dave Reimer, glad to be sharing with you this morning. Um, I, I feel kind of specially privileged to be here and help Will celebrate his first Sunday as a staff member here. I'm glad you're here, Will. Welcome to the team. When, uh, when Pastor Steve retired after 20-some years of ministry here last about a year ago, we wondered what the way forward would be for grace, but we have discovered that where there's a will, there's a way. Um, that probably falls into the dad jokes category, grandpa jokes in my case. Happy Independence Day. Today is our nation's 245th birthday. Happy birthday, America. And I'm going to say something publicly that would not be well received in all circles, but I want to say publicly that I love the United States of America, my country. And I know that statement would horrify an increasingly vocal segment of our population which believes that there is nothing to love about our country. But I, I think I have a somewhat unique perspective from which to make a statement like that because I'm an adopted son, not a native son. I came into citizenship as an adult, an experience that I share with a little handful of others, uh, including a couple of guys uh, who have done so just this year, become naturalized American citizens and are both in the service today with me. And so we Canadians uh, have adopted the United States of America. And they, as I, were born in Canada. And uh, we're, uh, we have adopted America. Sometimes people who know that I was born in Canada would ask me, do, do you have a 4th of July in Canada? And I would say, no, we just go right from the 3rd to the 5th on our calendar, and it messes things up, but we manage. I love our country. I believe God has had a unique hand in our establishment and in our history. Years ago, 40-some years ago, I believe by now, I heard a song that I quickly learned to love by an artist named Neil Enloe called The Statue of Liberty. Uh, I would sing it for you, except it would ruin the experience this morning for you being here. But it's been going through my, my head all week. And here's the first verse and the chorus. In New York Harbor stands a lady with a torch raised to the sky. And all who see her know she stands for liberty for you and me. I'm so proud to be called an American, to be named with the brave and the free I will honor our flag and our trust in God and the Statue of Liberty. How can I or anyone else say that they're proud to be an American? Because it's true that as a nation we're dealing with some huge fundamental issues. Some of our struggles unprecedented in our 245-year history. We are more deeply divided today over cultural, political, and moral issues than we have been since the Civil War. A national news organization conducted street interviews of young adults in Washington, D.C. last week and asked a large number of them if they were proud to be an American. Almost everyone said absolutely not. One young woman said she was embarrassed to be an American every day. And almost everybody else said something similar. 
And it is absolutely clear that we do have huge issues in our land. We have made mistakes. We have not perfectly fulfilled the dream that our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution expressed so beautifully. There is injustice. There is racism. There is oppression in places. And, and when somebody asks me, how can you love something that has so much wrong with it? My answer is, can you love something that is not perfect? Of course you can. We do it every day. I'm so thankful that my wife can love someone who is far from perfect. I can love a country which is deeply flawed, but in which there is still so much good to be found. Secondly, we're not only dealing with major issues in America's past and present, but most importantly, most significantly, we are further from God than we have ever been as a nation. And every day we push Him and His truth further and further out of our lives and our cultural and political conversations. The late Ray Stedman was a pastor who, who I really appreciated, one of my favorite pastors and authors years ago. He pastored the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California for decades. He loved little poems and wrote some many himself. Here's a limerick that he used to quote. Our race had a splendid beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We hope that the story will end in God's glory, but at present the other side's winning. How do we deal with that? What's our perspective on Christians and Christian truth and Christian consensus being marginalized further and further. There's a second verse to Neil Enloe's Statue of Liberty song that goes to a truth that is deeper and more important than our identity as a citizen of the United States. On lonely, lonely Golgotha stood a cross with my Lord raised to the sky, and all who kneel there live forever as all the saved can testify. I'm so glad to be called a Christian to be named with the ransomed and whole. As the statue liberates the citizen, so the cross liberates the soul. Oh, the cross is my statue of liberty. It was there that my soul was set free. Unashamed, I'll proclaim that a rugged cross is my statue of liberty. God's power can transform a person, a family, a community, and even a nation. It does a radical work from the inside out. What's the power that transforms a person or a family or a community or a nation? It's the cross. What's the message that tells the story of that power? It's the gospel. The good news declaration that God has done the work through the cross to make it possible for anyone to escape the judgment all are under. It's critical to know what the gospel is before anything else. Uh, Marilyn and I have gotten involved along with another couple in a young adult Sunday school class, and we're going to discuss some of these big issues that we're confronting culturally, theologically, biblically, personally, ethically. But in the part that I'm teaching, we're starting with a very simple foundational declaration or proposition or question. What is the gospel? Because the gospel is not understood properly and biblically by so many. And we're losing ground. We're losing the gospel. We're losing confidence. 
The gospel is not a declaration of freedom that comes from social justice or anti-racism work, important as that work may be even for Christians. The gospel is a declaration that through the cross on which God's Son Jesus died, we can be delivered from the condemnation every man, woman, and child is under if we will but receive it by faith. We're losing the gospel. We're losing our confidence that the gospel can transform people families, communities, and nations. The gospel brought you and me, and it can bring millions of others the most important kinds of freedom that it is possible to know. Listen to a few scriptures selected from a large volume of biblical material in which God speaks about the freedom. Paul in Galatians 5 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Peter, in uh, 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I love the freedoms of our nation, the freedom to worship, to gather, to do so many things, but the greatest freedom you and I can enjoy is this freedom in Jesus. This is what the gospel does. And we're losing our grip on that truth. Even some churches are losing their grip on that truth. John Stott wrote about this in his commentary on 2 Timothy. That commentary is titled, Guard the Gospel. And he writes this, For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it and are prepared to suffer for it, and who will pass it on, pure and uncorrupted, to the generation which in due course will rise up to follow them. That's one of the reasons we're investing in this young adult Sunday school class. The generations behind us gray-haired people need to know what the gospel is and need to understand and embrace its power. Uh, We read Psalm 71 this morning, Marilyn and I. uh, Even when I'm old and gray, it goes on to describe, at that point I will declare to the next generation. Now for the rest of our time today, I want to go to a place in the Bible where we're going to look at a story that, that shows us how the gospel works, how it transforms a city which was a culturally and morally corrupt, far from God's city that was in the death grip of darkness. The place in the Bible is Acts chapter 19. If you're accustomed to following in your own Bibles or devices, you, you might turn there. We're going to look at the whole chapter in bits and pieces at least. But this chapter tells the story of the birth of the church in the city of Ephesus. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This story in Acts chapter 19 is one of the reasons that Paul could say with confidence the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And so what we're going to do today is look at this chapter, not so much from the perspective about what the gospel is, that's a whole study in its own right, but it's about how the gospel works. Let me give you a little background to the story. And, and this chapter, we could approach from one of a dozen or more different perspectives. That We're going to look at it from a particular perspective of how the gospel works. But the story in 19, chapter 19 is one of those turning points in the book of Acts where we see the gospel going into progressively larger, spiritually darker, and more strategic cities. You may remember how at the start of his second missionary trip, the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Asia, where Ephesus was located, but the Holy Spirit very explicitly closed the doors to that trip and to another place they wanted to go. And in a vision that night, a man from Macedonia appeared to Paul calling for help. They believed that to be, as it was, the, the call of the Lord, and so they went there and they planted the gospel in several cities. Churches were born. On Paul's return, he did stop in Ephesus, and he spoke in the synagogue. They wanted him to spend a little more time there, but he couldn't, and he promised to return. He said, I will come back if it is God's will. You can read that in chapter 18, verse 21. Well, it was God's will, and in chapter 19... It shows his arrival in Ephesus. Now, it's important that you know some things about Ephesus. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. The city was large. It was prosperous. It was basically the New York City of Asia Minor. It had some of the most beautiful buildings in the world of that day. Life in Ephesus revolved in many ways around the worship of a goddess named Artemis or Diana. And their legend had it that she had fallen from the skies to Ephesus from the planet Jupiter. She was the goddess of fertility. Her physical image was a grotesque, multi-breasted woman. The temple they built for her was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The annual festival that they held in honor of her was kind of like the Mardi Gras in New Orleans or Rio de Janeiro. There was a theater in the city, not far from the temple, and you can see its ruins today. It could seat from 25 to 45,000 people. The annual festival of Artemis drew tourists and commerce from all over. It was a, a kind of the core of their economy. It was also a center of witchcraft for all kinds, of all kinds. It was, the city was filled with priests and magicians and witches and warlocks and quacks of every description. That was Ephesus. To date, in Paul's ministry, Ephesus would be the largest, darkest stronghold of Satan that he would enter. You remember what John wrote back in the first chapter of his gospel? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul believed that. And so he shared the gospel in the Jewish synagogue first for three months until the, the Jewish pushback forced him out, and then he went to a larger, more Gentile-oriented venue, which was the lecture hall of a man named Tyrannus. And he had an incredibly effective, they had an incredibly effective ministry that lasted another two years. You can see that in verses 9 and 10. And he stayed there longer than he stayed anywhere else. And the net result was that the whole province was impacted to the point that Luke says in verse 10 that all who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now remember, this is the place that the Holy Spirit had closed the door 
to Paul earlier. Chapter 16, verse 6 says, They were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. We're not sure of all the reasons that God had for the timing in this, but sometimes, sometimes when God says no, it's not a denial of a vision or a calling. It's a matter of timing. So here's what this story is all about, at least the perspective we're going to take in looking at this chapter. What happens when you confront a culture that is far from God with the truth of who God is and what He's done? And you can insert the United States of America or Canada or any other place into this story. Now this chapter is a multi-layered story with lots of elements and lots of power encounters between the forces of darkness and light. But the thread that runs through it has to do with the gospel. If we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to share it effectively, we must understand how it works. And we must believe that it works. Now, let me mention something else about chapter 19 in support of uh, the approach that I'm taking this morning about how the gospel works. There's, there's very little in chapter 19 about the content of the gospel. It, it just doesn't say much about that. It says Paul spoke boldly, verse 8. It describes him arguing persuasively, verse 8. He had discussions, verse 9, and people heard the word of the Lord, verse 10. Now, we know that what he taught was Christ-centered because after some of the miracles, verse 17, the name of the Lord, Jesus, was held in high honor. But except for that, it doesn't say much about the message itself. We have to go to other places in the Bible for that. Now, 23 of the verses in this chapter are devoted to a riot, the riot in Ephesus. Ten verses to the miracles and the encounter with an evil spirit. It seems a little odd. What's Luke's purpose in writing about Ephesus and these events. It's not to show us what the gospel is, but how it works, what kind of impact it has. Now, here's part of the answer to why Luke is approaching this story this way. Remember, the primary purpose of the book of Acts is to trace the spread of the gospel in the establishment of new churches from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the world as Jesus commanded. And since chapter 28 of Acts, the last chapter, concludes with Paul in Rome, in this book of Acts, Luke explains basically how the church got from Jerusalem to Rome and then from there to the rest of the world. The riot in Ephesus is part of the reason for Paul's getting there. Paul might have stayed in Ephesus longer. He was already longer there than he'd ever been. In chapter 23, verse 11, Paul learns even more specifically what God wants him to do. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So this riot is a part of the story of how Paul was ejected from Ephesus, so to speak, so that he would continue moving so he could eventually end up in Rome. You could almost call the book of Acts tracing the progress of the gospel. Now we need to get to the text and see how the gospel works. That's a long introduction, but that's what you just heard. First thing in the account is a little strange. It's a story of an encounter between Paul and some sort of believers. Here's what I mean. What we learn here in the first seven verses is that the gospel is Jesus-specific. 
might be kind of a cumbersome way to put it, but it's an important point. This saga in Ephesus begins with a little story that reminds us that we haven't gotten to the gospel until we've gotten to Jesus. Here's the story, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, these were people who, who were believers in John the Baptist's message of preparation for the Messiah's coming. And it became clear to Paul that they had not become true Christians yet. They were living without either the truth or the power of the gospel. Now, what's important to note is what Paul did about it. He led them to Jesus. Paul tells them that John told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Their baptism by John was now obsolete because the one coming after him had come. And apparently they accepted that because they were then baptized in the name of Jesus. Here's part of what this means for you and me. It's not enough to be religious or even to identify with a body of believers. You haven't responded to the gospel until you've responded to Jesus. Then these guys prophesied and they spoke in tongues which tied their experience of coming to Christ in the minds of all those who were watching, the Christians who were there, to what had happened at Pentecost and a few times afterwards, and they said, this is the same thing that happened then. They're true believers. That was Paul's message. It's a message about Jesus. And Later we read that Paul argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message, that he'd come to establish the kingdom. So what Paul is saying is, remember, Jesus came. That's our focus. Uh, John Wesley wrote in his journal one day, I came into town and I brought them Jesus. That was his focus. That's what Paul did. There's no gospel if there's no Jesus in it. You don't get God in pieces. Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are three and they are one. And now that these guys finally heard of Jesus, they got the whole package in a very evident way. The gospel is Jesus-specific. The next part of the story shows us how the gospel separates. It separates. Paul begins his public ministry in the Jewish house of worship, the synagogue, and here's how it went, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The gospel is an exclusive message. It's a very narrow message. It's about Jesus and his work. And it's an exclusive message that separates those who will receive it 
from those who won't. There really is no middle ground. If the heart of a believer or if the heart of a hearer is not open to respond, it will react against the truth of the gospel. And that's really dangerous because then the truth eventually is removed. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Here in Ephesus now, it's time to bring the gospel out into the open. And then Jesus, in that Mark passage, continues telling his listeners, If anyone has ears, let them hear. Ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear. He continued, with the measure you used, it will be measured to you and even more. And then here's the key statement. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. There were times when many of those listening to Jesus just left. They just, they couldn't get it. They resisted it. And that's what happens now in Ephesus. So Paul has to move out of the venue where the Jews were hearing him because the truth had separated those whose hearts were open from those who became hardened against it. Paul uses, or the text uses the word obstinate. But as a result, there was a two-year period of fruitful gospel ministry throughout the whole province of Asia, resulting in many whose hearts were open coming to faith. Now, if I understand this scripture from Mark's gospel correctly, where Jesus is saying this, it means this. If you are resisting the gospel in your own heart, you run the risk of it being withdrawn from you and the opportunity being withdrawn from you to respond. God's spirit will eventually go where he is welcome, and you will have lost your chance, at least at that moment, to get right with God. So... As Paul was teaching, Luke says that extraordinary miracles were occurring, and I believe through the miracles, God is demonstrating another thing that the gospel does and how it works. It overpowers evil, verses 11 and 12. And Luke tells how even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, Paul, were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. I don't know that this is intended to be normative practice for the church, although I, and I don't know that there were healing campaigns or services conducted, but in the course of things, God simply decided to act in those ways. Now, I don't think these handkerchiefs were like the little prayer claws you get from some televangelist, and then you send back with a generous check, and he and his wife promised to pray over these. But the point of what Paul was doing was that, that he was proclaiming the gospel. The gospel had power, and God chose to demonstrate that power in overcoming all kinds of evil. They were studying, they were sharing worshiping, learning in the hall of Tyrannus. They told the truth about the Lord, and he demonstrated that he had power over all kinds of evil and its hold on the, word, on the world. Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, says this, The prince of darkness grim, we know who that is, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And maybe... As here, even something less than a word, a scrap of cloth that Paul had used, an apron in which he'd sewn tents, if God so determines, even those things can break the power of evil. 
And the greatest evil resides not in a culture or in a political party or anything. It, result, it resides in the human heart. And God can and will overpower it by the truth of the gospel. I like the next little section of this chapter. It, it's an incident that Luke records. It's really kind of funny in some ways. And I think it shows how the gospel repudiates religion. Here's what I mean. Luke introduces the story in this little introduction, verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. There were seven sons of a Jewish chief priest, and he did this in the evil spirit. And the man said to them in verse 15, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And this man with, with the evil spirit jumped him and snatched him naked, and they ran through the streaking through the streets of Ephesus, terrified. At least part of the lesson here is that it's, it's really dangerous to just mix a little Jesus in with your culture. We can use the name of Jesus in the right situations, and, and we, we will be ahead. We can be totally something else in some other place. Sometimes we call that kind of thing syncretism. We mix a little Jesus with whatever else we want to mix. Uh, in some countries, we add Jesus talk to our religious activities. In some countries, people who have received the gospel through missionary activity have mixed their new understanding of Jesus with their old paganism, and they've made something new that isn't really valid in God's eyes. Jesus warns us that the day is going to come when people will say to him, this is Matthew 7, 23, Lord, Lord, we did wonderful things in your name. You know what Jesus says in response? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The gospel repudiates religion. We cannot add Jesus to our religious activities. He will reject that effort. We become Christians by believing, not achieving. It's Jesus plus nothing. We also see that when the gospel is clearly presented and people respond, there's a, a dramatic impact. Let me put it this way. The gospel penetrates deeply. Verses 17 through 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had, had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. When Paul preached Christ to them and they responded, they were changed to the core of their being. Their repentance produced fruit. I want to point out that Paul did not come into town moaning about the symptoms of a sick society. He came saying, I've got something to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they responded and were so transformed that they rejected the most powerful forces in their own city, the splendor and worship of the goddess Artemis. The gospel goes deep. If we want something to happen in our community and in our culture, it will happen most effectively not by campaigns against the evils of our society, though they are many and they are evil. It will happen because, first, hearts are transformed. And when hearts are transformed, the culture is impacted. The next part of the story is really 
the dominant part of the chapter in terms of the space on the page. It's, and it's a riot. Paul's sermons were a riot. They caused a riot. It tells us something else about how the gospel works. The gospel creates opposition. I'm not going to read the whole story, but here are a couple of excerpts that describe how it came down. Soon the whole city was in an uproar, verse 29. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. And it goes on, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there, verse 32. They all shouted in unison for about two hours, verse 34. It was like they were at a football game. What a riot. Now remember this theater in which this was happening could hold 30 or 40,000 people. We don't know if it was full or not, but the whole city was impacted by this. It's likely that it was. And this is a serious threat to the work of the gospel in Ephesus. It was intense. It was a big deal. It's why Paul would tell the Corinthians later, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. That's what it felt like to him to be part of this. Now, in this story of the riot, there, there are really three people who are at the heart of the story. The first is a guy named Demetrius, who was a craftsman, a silversmith, and his work was manufacturing idols. And I'm sure all of the idols that he made in his little shop were to the uh, goddess Artemis or Diana. And so he gathers his fellow craftsmen together and whips them into a fury over the threat to their business. You see, one of the ways that the gospel creates opposition is because it challenges our self-interests. And our deepest self-interests are often economic. And so, and, and this gospel presentation cuts across the materialistic aims of their society. For Demetrius, it's a profit margin issue. And he says to his fellow idol makers, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. But then Demetrius ups the ante a little by setting it not in an economic context, but a religious context. And so the gospel also creates opposition because it challenges religious interests. Demetrius says there is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, this makes it all sound a little less self-serving, doesn't it? Of course, they weren't doing this for their own sakes. They weren't objecting for their own sakes. They were contributing to the divine majesty of the goddess herself. We have a much higher motive here, he says. Often when the gospel or missionary work is persecuted, it is by the existing religious establishment who sees it as a threat. The second person who's at the center of the story is a Jewish person named Alexander. Here's the short version. The Jews of the city and the synagogue seem to fear that the uproar that's taking place now is going to target them as well, even though they're not officially Christians. Um, so they get Alexander, this guy named Alexander, to the front to explain that they were not connected to this rebellious group and that they were not the cause of their loss of business. They had, they had peacefully coexisted with the idol-making business for, for many years. When the crowd saw that he was a Jew, it went from bad to worse. And then there's one, one other person, an unnamed town clerk, who shows up in verse 35. Now, a town clerk in this context would be uh, the primary legal authority in the city. He's like a mayor, city manager, and clerk of the courts all rolled into one. And what happens when he takes the stage shows us one more way 
that the gospel works. It's, it's an interesting little insight here that I want to point out. And this is something that the gospel does not do. This is not how the gospel primarily works. The gospel does not denounce sinners. Just hear me out. Verses 35 to 41. But this clerk stands up and basically affirms what everybody knows. Artemis is great, and she's in no danger. He says these facts are undeniable. And then he makes an interesting observation, verse 37. They have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Think about that a moment. That's just, now, what do you think Paul thought of their goddess and their temples? Well, he knew that they were nothing, but he also knew that they were the cause of the great spiritual darkness among the people, so he was, in his spirit, deeply opposed to what he saw in the city. But the heart of their strategy was to present Jesus first, not denounce the sinners first. Now, certainly, as people of biblical conviction, we must stand against evil as as God leads us to, in whatever way God leads us to. But our primary strategy is not a negative thing. It's a positive proclamation of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he offers every man, woman, young person, and child today. And it's kind of amazing, the, the effect this clerk has. He simply says, these people haven't done anything against our laws. Press charges if you want, but in the meantime, just go home. He dismisses the assembly. You know what happens? They all go home. And this riot shows us something about how the gospel works. It revealed God's sovereign plan in taking Paul out of Ephesus now and leaving behind a strong, thriving church. Back in the uh, late 40s and 50s, when all the missionaries were uh, ejected from China, there was great moaning around the world that the gospel is dead in China. When they were allowed back in some decades later, they found millions of believers. A thriving church. The gospel works. But all of this happened in Ephesus because Paul preached Christ. And when he preached Christ, the people were changed. They repented of their evil. When they preached Christ, they burned their evil books. When he preached Christ, they were so shaken by the gospel's power that they even defied the greatest religious powers that place had ever seen, all in the name of Jesus. All this without a negative word even spoken, or at least recorded. Do you understand that if we want to see things really change around our communities, it'll happen when we take seriously God's assignment to us to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's why we started some years ago planting churches. New churches are one of the best venues for sharing the gospel. All of our church plants that we've been a part of for the last 10 or however many, 20 years, have incredible stories of how God has transformed people. That's happened here. We, see the test we hear the testimonies at the baptisms. Jesus changes people. It's how... The gospel works. Let me wrap up with an illustration from history of, of the unique way that God takes little things that you and I do in response to the call of the, for us to take the gospel. Little things. It doesn't have to be big things. But he puts a chain together by his grace. 
and it results in gospel impact. In the early 17th century, a guy named Richard Sibbs wrote a little book about Christ called The Bruised Reed. A copy of that book fell into the hands of a tin peddler who gave it to a boy named Richard Baxter, who became one of the greatest Puritan pastors and authors. Among the things Baxter wrote was something called A Call to the Unconverted, which a guy named Philip Doddridge read early in the 18th century and in turn wrote The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. A young man named William Wilberforce read that book. And it so impacted him that it was a part of what led him to fight for the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. Wilberforce was a sickly little man uh, that some called a shrimp. And he had, but he had such eloquence for Christ that James Boswell immortalized it by writing that during one of his speeches, the shrimp grew and grew and grew and became a whale. And, of course, Wilberforce is the one responsible for bringing an end to British slavery shortly before he died. Significantly, Wilberforce was a powerful inspiration for the late Charles Colson and the founding of Prison Fellowship. The Bible says, entrust the gospel to reliable people who can pass it on to others. If you take one of those blue cards on the spot wall, and you work in the kids' department under Amy and the rest of the staff here, you might set into motion this kind of thing that transformed a culture eventually through the power of the gospel. One, one last quote. I love good quotes because they say them so much better than I can. A guy named William Williman has said that a lot of teaching today reduces salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to Dear Abby. We can do better than that, and we will do better that, than that. And by God's grace and power here at Grace Community Church, we are doing better. And we must pray and work even harder and more boldly to be gospel people because the gospel works. It changes lives. Father, thank you for the gospel, that it is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. And we pray that there will be gospel impact that results uh, from our own small or large contributions to the ministry you've called us to. And help those of us who are a little older to reach out to that next generation, the next generation after that, and help them understand the gospel and fall in love with Jesus, and themselves long to take the gospel somewhere. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, Dave. All right, Grace, are we ready to go out and be the church? Awesome. All right, we're going to do that together here. A second. I don't have this memorized yet, so i got to read it. All right. We have been motivated by the love God has shown us in Christ. We have been united in our worship of the living God together. We have been encouraged by our fellowship with one another. We have been equipped preaching of God's word. Now go in the power of the Holy Spirit. In all that you do, love God boldly. In whatever family, neighborhood, workplace, or school God has placed you, love God sacrificially. In whatever stage of life you find yourself, 
Look for opportunities to faithfully lead others to do the same. You are the church. Now go, now go be the church. Thanks, Grace.